Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. Now here's the show. So this January 6th, exactly two years later, we need to come together across the nation to remember those who are lost on this very spot on that terrible day and honor their memories. It's Friday, January 6th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. A little later, we'll get updates on the Buffalo Bills' DeMar Hamlin and how his injury Monday is reverberating across the NFL. And we'll get a dispatch from CES in Las Vegas. But first, it's been two years since pro-Trump rioters stormed the Capitol and attempted to stop the certification of the 2020 election. President Biden is marking the occasion by awarding the Presidential Citizens Medal to a group of election workers and law enforcement officers for what he calls their contributions to our democracy during the attack. In Congress, Democrats are tying the anniversary to the latest political fight freezing proceedings on Capitol Hill, pointing out that it's a group of election-denying Republicans who are preventing Kevin McCarthy from becoming House Speaker. Deepa Fernandez and Celeste Headley had plenty to discuss in our weekly politics roundtable with NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez and Enrique Acevedo, a correspondent with CBS News. So let's go straight to the House. There are 20 holdouts who've been voting against McCarthy, but now a few of them in this very current vote happening right now are flipping their votes and supporting him. Do we have any information on what kind of concessions they may have been offered and why they're flipping now, Franco? Well, we know that there have been a lot of talks. I mean, uh, Kevin McCarthy had, you know, come out of some of those meetings and was talking to some reporters, kind of huddled around him before the vote. And he, you know, commented that they'd made some progress. Um, but he left, you know, didn't say exactly whether he would have the votes. And as you just noted, there have already started the voting and he does not have uh, the number of votes that he needs to win in this uh, round of voting. But he has uh, picked up more votes than he did. There's been a lot of uh, moments of applause for him as uh, some of the 20 that had voted against him that turned to vote for him, including South Carolina uh, Representative Greg Norman, who has been one of the most vocal critics of McCarthy. So while he doesn't have the numbers that he needs this round, uh, he's got some momentum, and this is likely to put some pressure on some of the other holdouts um, to to possibly, in future votes, uh, to try to come over. So, Enrique, critics of these 20 holdouts, maybe fewer now, um, say they're not all that interested in actually governing. What do they want? I mean, I understand the criticism is easier to be opposition than than it is to govern. Um, It's easier to be campaigning than it is to be sworn in in a position and, and deliver results. And, and I think we, we have to make a broader point here and say democracy, it's about legitimacy, but it's also about performance. And so results do matter, not just uh, in terms of the House functioning, which it doesn't until the new members are sworn in, until we have a, 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 a proper protocol uh, addressed. Um, and and I, I think, you know, the fact that this... Uh, minority um, keeps hijacking the entire legislative agenda and the operation of the lower chamber, uh, it, 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 it allows us to make that point about 
well, how can democracy work if it's not delivering the results the American people need? And the American people are not mm -hmm. so much concerned about this, this, these protocols as they are about getting things done. And I think uh, that's where the criticism is coming from. I think one of the other things to pick up on your point there, Enrique, that's worrying people is the concessions that are being made to to flip some of these rebels over to the other side. And, and Franco, it, it makes me wonder, where are the moderates in the Republican Party? Are they worried about what the concessions will mean for doing the business of the House? Are Democrats worried about that? I mean, there's definitely concern about those uh, those concessions. I mean, some of those concessions are so significant that they would, uh, you know, make bipartisanship even harder. Where they will, they will, you know, these committee uh, these committee assignments that are being called for, uh, putting more uh, more extreme positions on these committees uh, would very likely change uh, the tenor of those debates, um, and you know, go in a whole go in a much you know even you know more you know more uh, strategic, not strategic, but a more divisive uh, direction. But the reality is, you know, relations are just so bad. I mean, there has been some talk um, about Republicans and Democrats trying to get together to find a more moderate speaker, kind of to bypass McCarthy. Um, you know, Democrats obviously are not going to bail out McCarthy. I mean, some have floated that idea, but, you know, trust is just so uh, bad at the moment. And there is an appetite for bipartisanship from the electorate. You know, why not uh, have some Republicans and Democrats come together and, you know, elect a more moderate speaker who could kind of do, as Enrique was saying, you know, the will of the people as a as opposed to uh, just, you know, kind of partisanship or political, you know, moves. But, yeah. you know, the reality is right now, uh, it's the people in the political trenches who are against this kind of thing. It's the people who are giving money to campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, they are not uh, looking for that type of necessarily that type of bipartisan partisanship, they more want to strengthen their own side. So it just doesn't yeah. seem plausible in today's Washington. There's just so much division. Well, let's um, move away from that drama for a moment um, <laughs> and talk about something else. <laughs> Yesterday, President Biden announced new immigration measures that will allow the government to turn away Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans who cross the border without authorization to enter. He also expanded the ways migrants can apply for the authorization and then fly into the country rather than show up at the border. And, and here he acknowledges the tough political reality on immigration. I'll sit down with anyone who in good faith wants to fix our broken immigration system. And it's hard. It's hard on the best of circumstances. But if the most extreme Republicans continue to demagogue this issue and reject solutions, I'm left with only one choice. To act on my own, do as much as I can on my own to try to change the atmosphere. So, Enrique, do you think that the moves that he's making are, are, are will change what is currently a desperate situation at our southern border? And I love the fact that these two uh, topics are tied, even though we're trying to move <laughs> away from the first one, because it shows you how, despite the large public consensus on what we need in terms of a functioning immigration system, common sense laws, uh, the, 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 it, the politics are so hard around the, the issue yeah. that uh, we've seen these executive actions, these unilateral decisions being taken, not just from President Biden, but from the previous two administrations as well. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're seeing the, the carrot and the stick with the measures announced this week. 
it makes it easier for people who are coming from countries that are fleeing dictatorships and, and bad governance, Nicaragua, Haiti, the case of Venezuela, Cuba, uh, to apply for, for a, a immigration benefits. But it also um, it makes it even harder for asylum seekers reaching the border to uh, present their asylum claim and, and get it approved. Um, I think there's a humanitarian history, a tradition in the U.S. of, of uh, opening our arms to, to those in need. And, and in, in many ways, this contradicts that, that tradition. But I understand that the administration wants to avoid the images of chaos and disorder that we keep seeing year and year, year after year at, at the border. Uh, they, they're working with Mexico and others, other partners in the region to try to solve this issue, the root causes. But in the meantime, they have to address the, the urgent matter and, and the patient in the ER. And that's, that's the border. And I think that explains the, the measures we, we, heard from, uh, we heard about this mm. week. And some of what you're saying there, Enrique, we have been hearing from immigrant advocates that, that they're not really happy with, with many of the things that has been proposed by the president or announced by the president. But you did mention he's working with Mexico. He's headed there. He's headed to El Paso on Sunday and then Mexico for a summit next week. What do you think he might achieve? Well, um, you know, it's his first visit as president to the border. He's been there before. Uh, 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 Joe Biden has always advocated for fighting the root causes of immigration, investing in the in the communities that are pushing these migrants to the border. Um, now, as president, he's taking a different approach, and, and of course, he's focusing on the border. Like again, the the, the last not just two administrations, but the, the the U.S. government has done in the last two, two decades this border security obsession and border sealment. Uh, strategy that, that's been in place uh, since after 9-11. Um, I, I, I think uh, what he's trying to achieve is uh, a, a tactical and a strategic solution to the immigration challenge uh, by providing the resources to the Border Patrol and the border agencies to deal with, with the influx, the very large influx of, of migrants uh, by creating a, a legal system that can address that demand, but at the same time working with these partners in the region to see the ways in which they can incentivize people to remain in their communities. It's going to be very hard. That's a long-term strategic goal. And, and it's going to be top of mind in, in the North American Leaders Summit that's being held in Mexico next week. So we have less than a minute here, Franco, but I wondered if you could tell me what you're thinking about on this date, the second anniversary of the January 6th riot. What's top of mind for you? Yeah, I was actually here. Uh, you know, I was, co I was covering the Trump administration during... Uh, that time. And, you know, I remember, you know, his speech and being riled up. I think what really kind of stands out to me is, you know, watching, you know, the chaos, frankly, in uh, in the Congress right now and uh, seeing the House being so divisive, seeing the Republicans being so divisive among themselves um, and just how far uh, the, you know, Washington still is even yeah. two years uh, mm -hmm. from, from that date. Uh, and it's a little bit disconcerting. Franco Adornia is NPR White House correspondent and Enrique Acevedo, anchor of NMAS and a contributor to CBS News. Thanks. Thank you. Coming up, doctors treating Damar Hamlin say he's making an encouraging recovery, but his injury still leaves a lot of questions for the NFL. Stick around. Putting that helmet back on was a really good thing for our team and just to, to kind of go through that process. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't say 
you know, some people are going to be changed forever. Bills quarterback Josh Allen in a press conference following Thursday's practice, three days after safety DeMar Hamlin suffered a cardiac arrest and collapsed on the field. Doctors treating Hamlin at a hospital in Cincinnati say they've removed his breathing tube and he's able to speak again. We called up ESPN's Mina Kimes for the latest. Here's her conversation with Deepa. So DeMar Hamlin is awake and talking, which is great news. Yesterday, he communicated through writing because he was still connected to a breathing tube. Here's what Dr. Timothy Pritz said happened when he first woke up. Yes, did we win? The answer is yes. You know, DeMar, you won. You've won the game of life. Uh, And that's probably the most important thing out of this. And we really need to keep him at the center uh, of everything else that's going on. So Hamlin's improving. Is there a sense for doctors that he's going to make a full recovery at this point, Mina? You know, it's obviously a bit early to speculate about what's going to happen in the near long-term future. But the news coming out right now out of Cincinnati is really good. It's been positive for a couple of days. As you said at the beginning, Demar Hamlin is talking. He's breathing on his own. And so to get here now, I think, is pretty incredible. And you heard it in Josh Allen's voice. Yeah. Do we know anything more about what might have caused his heart to stop? So they haven't been super specific about what caused the cardiac arrest. Of course, though, like everyone who's watching the game, I saw him receive a pretty forceful blow to the chest. So, you know, you can draw your own conclusions based on what we've seen. But at the moment, all we know is that he immediately went into cardiac arrest. The NFL made the decision not to restart the game between the Bills and the Bengals because it wouldn't affect the upcoming playoffs. How did the teams respond to that decision? You know, it really started the night of. I think watching that, everyone's first thought was, well, they're going to keep playing because this is the NFL. They always keep playing. Right, and, right. you know, there's horrible injuries all the time. Uh, this is not the first time an ambulance has been on the field. Uh, but then when the severity of what had happened became apparent, as well as the players' um, really unprecedented reactions, the game was called off. And, and that led to the round of wondering if it would be played again. Uh, there's a pretty tight time crunch for the NFL because we're entering the final week of the regular season, and then you go straight into the playoffs. And I think it was because of that time crunch, as well as just the general sentiment of how strange it would be to watch these two teams pick up right where they left off mm-hmm. that led to the NFL making this decision to not play it. Yeah. You know, as as you just mentioned, um, it is no secret that, that football can be dangerous. But after Hamlin's collapse, we've seen coaches from across the league acknowledge that danger as they watch their players put their bodies on the line. How have they been talking to their teams about that? And how out of the ordinary is it? It's very out of the ordinary. You know, we do do see pretty horrible injuries all the time in football. But I think what was so unusual about this injury, him having to be administered CPR on the field, him not showing any signs of life, frankly. I mean, how often have we seen a player be carted off but raise his thumb for the thumbs up to let the crowd know, hey, I'm I'm conscious. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really mm-hmm. scary. And then so to your question, I think what a lot of the coaches have been talking about is um tending to their players' mental health, as well as the mental health of their players' families. Because whether a player is on the field watching this happen, you know, the Bills circled around him to protect him, their teammate, or just a normal, an NFL player who was not playing, watching that game, I have to think that all of them thought, well, that could have been me. And it's really hard to process that. It's psychological. I mean, it's fairly traumatic. And now they're going to return to play on Sunday. What about the players themselves? I know you've been talking to players. What are they most concerned about? 
first and foremost, uh, DeMar Hamlin and his family. And I think just the good news coming in the last couple of days, you can feel just so much relief from players, both current and former, uh, across the league. And then I think, you know, there's been a lot of communication, storytelling amongst players who are sharing similar experiences, incidents, moments in which they or their families worried about the violence of the game. And I think that's a good conversation to have because it's important for those of us who cover the league, but also fans to recognize the risk that comes with playing football. Do you think any kind of change might come out of this? You know, I think this injury is not the sort of injury or incident that does lead to change in terms of like rules on the field or procedures, because it is it was very uncommon. That said, there are still plenty of changes to be made with regard to both player safety, ongoing issues with brain injuries in particular, and the effects of those after football. And then I think just caring for the players after the game is a conversation that needs to be had. And I think there needs to be more focus on that amongst, again, not just people in and around the league, but fans as well. ESPN NFL analyst and commentator Mina Kimes. Thank you so much, Mina. Thanks for having me. The Consumer Electronics Show is back. So what's the buzz on the floor in Vegas? We'll find out after the break. Self-driving strollers, Bluetooth sunglasses endorsed by Paula Abdul, and the perennial promise of flying cars. Yes, it's the techno-capitalist fever dream known as CES, formerly the Consumer Electronics Show. Alex Kranz is managing editor of The Verge, and she tells Deepa the show is back in full force after two years dampened by the pandemic. Everybody is very excited to be back, and we're seeing a lot of companies that maybe saved things for the last two years, and now they're back and they're showing off everything. So we're seeing a lot of really wild stuff this year. Just Ooh, absolutely, tell us. yeah. I I've been pretty surprised. I mean, you're seeing the kind of typical wild stuff like rollerblades that have motors in them and that sort of thing. But you're also seeing stuff like Withings has a new urine sensor that you put in your toilet that's intended mm. to let you test uh, hormone levels as well as vitamin C levels, just kind of the whole gamut of quick health tests. And I thought that was really, really interesting. So We're you might know you're seeing... pregnant right away? <laughs> I don't know if you'd know that, but you'd be able to know when you're ovulating next, potentially. Mm. It's still waiting on Or FDA if you're approval. dehydrated. Or if you're dehydrated, my doctor would be very happy for me to take it for that reason. But it's it's definitely kind of an interesting device. And I thought what was really interesting is that they're very conscious of the personal security around it. So Withings is very conscious of the fact that some police in the United States would like to have that data in case they want to process a woman who might be pregnant and use that against the, that, that woman in the court of law. And Withings is super mindful Gosh. of that and saying, oh, you know what? If that starts happening we'll probably rethink this product because we don't want to be selling, we're not going to be selling data and we certainly don't want to be giving that data to the police. Hmm. Okay, and I mentioned flying cars. It seems like they're available for pre-order this year. <laughs> Is this tech even going to make it to market? I wouldn't get your hopes up anytime soon. We've been having the promise of flying cars for probably about 50 years now and there's a lot 
in the way of that. Most of the flying cars we see now are really more like supersized drones that you can sit in. So I don't necessarily know if most Ah. people want that experience. And I don't, I think it's going to be a while until the government says, yes, you can fly your, your personal human drone around the city. I can only imagine what our skies would look like. I don't I don't know that I like that <laughs> idea. There are some other products out there which, you know, m- might be good for just the regular person. One that that you brought to our attention was a makeup product that might be able to print the perfect eyebrows onto your face. Yes, L'Oreal the, the makeup maker, they've actually come to the CES a couple of times. Uh, a few years ago, they came out with this really cool product called the Perso that custom-made lipstick and foundation and skincare products. You just go and you punch in what your lip color you wanted and they make it for you. This year, they're doing the Brow Magic, which you scan your face with your phone and then you can kind of test different eyebrows you like. And then you just Ooh. take the printer that they're making in conjunction with a company called Prinker, and you just kind of drag it across your eyebrow and you have a whole new, hopefully fuller, thicker eyebrow. Wow. I also saw one where you could, uh, it colors your hair. You could run like a little printer through your hair and make it whatever color you want with some designs too. That sounded fun. Yeah, it sounds really fun. And it's, it's very similar to temporary tattoos, but you can kind of But unlike a temporary tattoo, you just use makeup remover to take it off. You don't have to wait. You don't have to really scrub at it. You just do a swipe and you can go again. So if you don't like the eyebrow the first time, you can repeat the process a few more times. Love it. Now, just to end up, inflation obviously still sky high. Amazon just announced that it's laying off 18,000 workers. More are expected in the tech industry to be laid off this year. So can we understand the conference's kind of part of an advertising blitz ahead of what could be a really tough tech year ahead? Absolutely. These companies are like CES is all about selling. They're trying to sell to the big vendors like Best Buy and Amazon itself while also trying to sell their products. Amazon was out there in full force this year, really showing off its smart home capabilities, working with a lot of partners with the introduction of this new smart home standard called Matter. And these guys really want to sell everything to us in the hopes that they can continue to to remain staffed as they go into a really, really difficult uh, 2023. Mm. And just finally, any piece of tech you're seeing at CES that you think might become a tech staple? I think it's e-ink. We saw a lot of e-ink products this year. We saw BMW had a car that actually had color-changing panels on it using e-ink. Lenovo had a new e-ink reader the Amazon Kindle has been using e-ink for over 10 years now, but this product is really starting to advance quickly. It's developing better colors and really great battery life versus a traditional LED screen. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of it after this year. That's The Verge's Alex Kranz talking about CES 2023. Alex, thank you. Thank you. No newfangled tech necessary to listen to this podcast, which comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Make sure you head to hereandnow.org for the latest news and a lot more. You can find expert analysis of the January 6th committee's report on the Capitol attack, the latest on the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students in November, and hear from the Poet Laureate of Buffalo. I know we're strong. We're strong. We don't need tragedy to strike to tell us how strong we are. 
but I am sorry that we have to keep recognizing our strength this way. You can find all that at hereandnow.org. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, James Mastro Marino, and Gabrielle Healy. Our editor is Todd Munt. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producer is Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you Monday. Have a great weekend. Thank you.